Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Join Justin Townsend and the Harvesting Nature crew as they explore the world of cooking wild fish and game while sharing recipes, tips, tricks, and lessons learned from their pursuit of wild food. We sure hope you ate before the show, because you're going to leave hungry. This is the Wild Fish and Game Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to Harvesting Nature's Wild Fishing Game Podcast. you got your host here, Justin Townsend. And uh, today, a uh, bit of a crew chat, but also a very special moment because uh, we're going to chat about uh, Brad Trumbo's first book. It's your first book, right? Yeah. First book. We're going to talk about his first book. We're going to get into it. We're going to talk about some upland game bird recipes. We're going to talk about cooking upland game birds. We're going to talk about the whole shebang. So, uh, first off, I'll, I'll do my due diligence and run through some stuff that we have going on, and I'll tell you about kind of what I'm doing. So, uh, man, we've been on it now. This is probably week three or four that I've mentioned it, but I'm, I'm really trying to push it. So, we got a hunting camp coming up, right? Uh, I, I think I've coined it. I did some Google searches, and I haven't found any conflicts of interest yet. So, we're going to call it a field-to-fork hunting event. I don't know. It's a mouthful. I'll play around with it and get it solidified. But essentially, uh, we're going to go down to Texas in April, the last weekend of April to be exact, and we're going to set up this really sweet lodge, and we're inviting you to come join us there, and we're going to teach you how to shoot, how to hunt, how to butcher, how to process, package, and then cook wild pig. It's going to be great. Three days total, four nights at an awesome lodge. You get to spend time with me. You for sure get to spend time with uh, Adam Berkelmans, who's going to be cooking. Adam Steele is going to be doing the butchering section. Ryan and or Emily Long will be there as well, teaching the shooting portion. Casey, our business manager, will be there. Corey may be there. Ben may be there. A whole bunch of people may be there. So if you like us and you enjoy hearing our voice and looking at our beautiful faces, although you're not looking at our beautiful faces on the podcast, but uh, you listen to our beautiful voice, which is the same in person. I, I've listened to it both ways. I visited Corey in the spring, and he sounds just like he does on the podcast. Maybe quieter, though. But... um. <laughs> All good stuff, though. No, it's going to be a great weekend. Uh, it's good. So I don't care if you're someone who's been hunting for 20 years or somebody who just got their hunter safety card and are like, I'm ready to go. I want to learn how to do it. This this course or this camp is intended to like give you everything you need that can translate over into other species. And one of the reasons we're doing it in Texas is because there's an invasive pig problem, 
We all know that. Second, it's very easy to host everyone at this really beautiful lodge and have the event space and the butcher space and the cooking space and all that stuff. So you're not really, when you look at it, the price of it, and I'll just go ahead and tell you, it's about $1,500, which is great. You're getting a Thursday night, a Friday night, and a Saturday night at this lodge. You're getting all your meals included. You're getting shooting instruction, hunting instruction, butchering instruction, storage instruction, and cooking instruction by literally some of the best minds in the community. I'll, I'll, I'll say that. Our folks are awesome. So you're not just paying to come out and shoot pigs. You're not just paying for land access. You're paying for literally the knowledge, the education, the experience. All of these things are packaged into one. So super awesome, super affordable when you compare it to a lot of other companies that are uh, offering – not as much. So uh, really, really excited for it. So I invite you to come out, check it out. Link will be down in the show notes, uh, or you can go, uh, I think it's harvestingnature.com slash hunting camps, uh, I think, or maybe camps. Either way, we'll figure it out. But uh, other than that, two spices. Spices should be rolling out here very soon. By the time you're hearing this, I think we're down to just a couple weeks. They're in production. Uh, they should be hitting the shipping phase. We're doing our big game blend first, followed up by our, uh, I'm calling it Upland Fowl. You know how I learned something new in researching this, and, and Brad and Corey, feel free to chime in on this one. So waterfowl, right? All the waterfowl. On the opposite side, it's actually a term landfowl. Have you guys ever heard that? I, I found that in a in a dictionary. Are you talking for like upland birds? All yeah. Terrestrial birds? Hmm. Yeah. No, I've never heard of that. So that makes total sense. I don't know it, you know, it's obviously has fallen out of uh fallen right. out of common language, but I've just heard fowl. I've never heard yeah. land fowl, yeah. but I've just heard fowl. But now it makes sense. Waterfowl, right? Mm-hmm. We got waterfowl and then you know, we commonly say, like you said, Brad, upland game or upland fowl. But land fowl, I'm like, well, yeah, I guess it makes sense. So that'd be like turkey. It'd be all your all your non-waterfowl birds. So pretty interesting. Uh, yeah, I toyed with calling the blend land fowl, and then I was like, I don't know, people may that may just like make some people uncomfortable. <laughs> so I just stuck with upland upland fowl blend. But that's gonna that blend's gonna cover all your bases for everything from like your darker colored meats to like your lighter colored meats in the fowl world of the land. <laughs> we'll put out another waterfowl blend in in next in, in the winter of twenty twenty two slash twenty three. So uh, excited about that. Uh, as far as for me, the updates I have, we're literally at the tail end of the season in Colorado. So we've got like, uh, small games left till the end of February. So I think I'm going to try to make it out this weekend for some squirrels and rabbits and whatnot. And then, uh, beaver goes until April. So I think those will kind of be on my radar, but I'm starting to plan all my fall hunts and my late spring hunts. Uh, excited about that. Uh, should be some cool things going on. Corey. What you got? Well, um, so the last podcast I spoke about the the Freedom Hunters, um, our pheasant hunt, and uh, we had it, and uh, the weather could not have been worse. It was, I don't know, about 18 degrees, 30 mile an hour winds, snow, um, you know, single digit wind chill. Uh, it was, so it is pretty cold, but uh, that didn't deter the the hunters. So we had originally we had 21 coming, but three couldn't make it because of the the conditions, driving conditions. They 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 couldn't couldn't make it. But, I can attest. I can attest to the Pennsylvania driving conditions in the winter. Terrible. <laughs> so uh, so yeah so. Uh, we had 150 pheasants and 11 chucker. Three of the pheasants were melanistic, so they're like a, a color phase. They were a real deep purple instead of like that coppery orange color. And and um, so what we did, um, so we we split the hunters into three groups. 
and um, we put one of those birds in each and and those three groups hunt three specific regions so we keep the three groups away from each other so you know safety reasons and whatnot but in each one of the hunt zones we put one of these melanistic birds and uh, we had Lake Erie taxidermy donate one free mount um, to the to the hunt and I was trying to figure out the best way to to give that free taxidermy away and I thought that what if whoever gets one of those melanistic birds puts their name into a hat and we draw from that hat and that's who gets the mount well it happened that only one person got one of those birds so he automatically won the free mount so we had the uh, Eric McCracken get one of the one of those and he was he was pretty happy about it so but despite the weather we uh we had a good time and uh had a lot of fun and killed a, killed a few birds so it was a it was a good time it looked i i will tell you i saw the news clip from your local news station uh that guy was very bold to come out and cover oh, that story yeah. <laughs> we we were we were out in the field and i'm not sure who told him to drive but he drove up this access road it's mind you there's snow on the ground and they're in this i don't know what kind of view it was like a little kia or something they drove up into the field way out into the middle of the of the where we were hunting and then all of a sudden i see this guy with the camera standing out in the middle of the field you know in this blizzard and i'm like who is that and then realized it was the newscaster so he was they they took their job seriously. They got out there and got got into the thick of it. Yeah, that was pretty awesome. It was uh, really good on you guys for for putting that on despite those conditions, but also for yeah, you know, like you're saying, for the newscasters to get out there and and actually cover it in that kind of condition. Yeah, it was good. And that that uh man that uh that weather because in the clip too you can see like the visibility like they're across the field and you're like. There's like three hunters over there. If I squint, I can see them through the snow. <laughs> yeah. The the snow was blowing horizontal. So Oof. it was blowing hard. And like if when those birds got up, they if you didn't get them, they were gone. Like they were on. They were hmm. they were moving. They were just flying right with that wind. And, you, you know, you just had a, a few seconds. It calmed down a little bit as the day went on, but especially in the morning there, it was pretty nasty. That's wild, man. Um, yeah, that's cool. It, it's cool, though. We, I mean, we've talked about it, what, we've had a couple episodes uh, where, where you discussed, uh, we had one where you discussed the hunt, and then we had another one where uh, we had, what's Anthony, the gentleman's name? Yeah, Anthony Pace. Anthony Pace on, yeah. Great, great stuff. Great organization. We'll throw those in the show notes. So if you want to go back and list those, uh, don't mind the audio quality. It was the early days of the podcast and we were still getting our feet under us, but still the content's just as awesome as ever. But yeah. All right. Well, uh, you got anything else going on? Any hunting seasons or fishing oh, seasons? Our, our, uh, small game like yours ends this weekend so but i probably won't make it out it's supposed to be crappy like that again this weekend so i don't think i could do it two weekends in a row um but uh here coming in march our 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 trout fishing season opens up the first part of april but all through march the pennsylvania fish commission stocks the local streams so uh, it's it's a you know a yearly tradition. I take the you know take the kids out of school. Oh yeah. And we we help stock a stream. So we're doing nice. that. You know, make a day out of it. You know, big group of friends and go to breakfast and then help stock. And so I'm looking forward to that. It does sound like fun. Mm-hmm. Yep, that'll be a good day. Um, what was it? When when is turkey season there? It typically starts like the last weekend of April or the first weekend in May, somewhere around there. We Pennsylvania starts a lot later than most states, and that's by design because the Game Commission wants the gobblers to breed 
you know, as many hens as possible and, you know, continue to populate the, the, uh, the turkeys. And so our season starts pretty late compared, you know, compared to everybody else. Nice. All right. Well, I'll put it on my calendar. Like I yeah. said, I'm starting to work on my hunts. I still got that spring turkey tag. You do, yeah. You got to fill something in PA. Yeah. Other than my beer mug. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are worse problems to have with that, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Brad. Uh, you want to give everybody a quick reminder of uh, who you are and what you do? Yep. So I'm Brad Trumbo. Uh, a lot of you know me as Tail Feathers Upland on Instagram. Uh, I'm an author and a fish and wildlife biologist and, and enamored with all things upland birds. So just about everything you see from me is, has to do with upland bird hunting, uh, hence one of the reasons I'm on the podcast today. Uh, as far as hunting seasons go for us, uh, we're looking at, I think we have hair and, and cottontail open until middle of March, and i, I swore to myself I was going to make a concerted effort to try to, to find a cottontail or two. I know a couple of good sites, and uh, after I guess after this past super cold snap and some snow, I'll probably be throwing on some snowshoes here before the 15th and uh, trying to hike up high and find a hare. I know some places where I've cut tracks in the past when I've been in there hunting mule deer in the snow, so uh, we'll have to go take a look and see what happens on that. I um, think I think I need to invest in some snowshoes. i got to figure that out. I haven't done it yet. But. I I would recommend it. You know, I, I got them just kind of on a whim, uh, probably right, when, I guess, the first fall we were under lockdown for COVID, and we started to actually get some snow around here in the winter, right? So it's like, yeah, I'm going to try some snowshoeings for, uh, for some fun in the, in the early part of the calendar year. But then after uh, after hunting a valley quail with the snowshoes here in early January, I was like, hey, this is actually a heck of a lot of fun. We're going to have to do this as, as often as possible now, so I would recommend it. Um, yeah, I'm surprisingly, I was just looking at them. They're not as expensive as I thought they would be. I'm guessing some could be, like, super expensive, but, like, that's pretty reasonable. I'm, I bet you, too, I could find some used ones. It's mm-hmm. hmm. a, a good takeaway for me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I, got a, I think I got mine from, like, sportsman's warehouse or something they were something big enough to fit a 300 pound dude and uh they were very reasonably oh, priced that reminds me i read in your book are you six seven i am i'm just a smidge smaller than sasquatch so oh, <laughs> nice i'm i'm not gonna make any tall jokes but i mean i'm i'm six one but that's like that's that's awesome was, some days <laughs> it, yeah i was reading uh where you're talking about going to, uh, I think it's North Dakota when you guys were goose hunting, mm-hmm. and your head, your uh, like black uh, cap was poking up out yep. of the the goose blind. Yeah, I'm a firm believer that I wrecked that whole hunt. There were uh, <laughs> there were too many geese flying around, you know, and we were in just fresh cut corn stubble and had a good spread. And I swear it's because my head was sticking out of the layout I blind. Just, <laughs> you. You know, you, I talk about this, and, like, if fish were any smarter, we'd never be able to catch them. And I, I'm starting to learn, like, geese, geese are, like, the we, so weary of, like, anything. It's just like, ah. Plus, they're like, we can land anywhere. We'll land on baseball fields. We'll land, you know, at your golf courses. We'll, we'll just take over everything. But that cornfield, there's some <laughs> weird lumps out there. We're not landing in that. Right. <laughs> Yep, they're they're yeah. like that brown trout who's really slick on which you know what's a fly mm-hmm. and what's not you know what if one little teeny thing out of place and they're just going to avoid it. Yeah, man. So I I'll tell you. Okay, I'll let everybody know. Uh, we're here obviously to talk about Brad's book, Wing Shooting Over the Palouse. Palouse, I said it right. Palouse. 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 I, gotta, I even <laughs> ask you. <laughs> Is it what's the what's the origin of that word? Is it French? That's a really good question. I actually haven't looked into the origin of it, but the the Palouse is basically a region of eastern Washington and, and uh, northwestern Idaho uh, that's just incredibly fertile here, kind of on the Columbia Plateau, and so it grows small grains extremely well. And there are hundreds of thousands of acres of wheat and lentils and green peas and chickpeas and and whatever else spread out across this whole area kind of uh kind of well north and south of the snake river in this this general area so have you been to eastern colorado to hunt yet 
not to hunt yet. No. All right. Well, the invitation's there. You let me Sounds know when good. you're ready. <laughs> Sounds good. Because uh, I'll tell you that, like, after reading your book, I'm so pumped for like bird season. I I came out here and like traditionally I have not been a big upland game hunter, bird hunter, upland bird hunter. Uh, I've shot rabbits and other crawling mammals, but never as many birds other than like dove, maybe a few quail here and there. But uh, I now put it on my list as moving out to Colorado, especially Eastern Colorado. Like I've got to hit some of these. I'm out West. There's plenty of public land. There's plenty of opportunity to get out and, and harvest a variety of different species. But then I read your book, which I wrapped up today, like I told you, and I'm just like, man, oh man, now I'm pumped. Like, well, yeah. So, you know, the, the going right into it, that first chapter talks about how, uh, having my own upland bird dog and, and actually living in a place that had a variety of bird species just really totally pulled me away from being a, mm-hmm. a, an avid big game hunter. And, and now like upland birds are on my mind 24 seven and just wanting to run the dogs and, and just go through that whole enactment. So what, what are you doing now in the off season to kind of prep? Well, so the off season has been a little lax for me in the, the past, partially because I, I, never really had a lot of uh, training tools or uh, a lot of time. My wife and I both have side businesses and, you know, we're, we're, we spread ourselves pretty thin and then I put a lot of effort in the pheasants forever in the off season. But that said, I, uh, this past winter, I finished up pigeon coop and I've got a bunch of homing pigeons. And as soon as they lay a clutch this spring, um, I'm going to start using those birds for, uh, for training and uh, mostly just to well okay so i've got well, i've got one dog and i talk about her quite a bit in the book her name's zeta mm-hmm. and she's she's a 4 year old little squirt and who really needs <laughs> uh, some some practice on steady to wing um, she she needs to hunt every day as a team not just when she's tired of running for herself and then decides to hunt with me right so that's a struggle that we have every <laughs> single day um, but that's going to be my off season is going to be working these dogs on on pigeons and uh, it, I might get a couple of other pen-raised game birds here and there. Um, but mostly I, I like the pigeons because, you know, you use them over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And uh, really just getting the dog, to, that dog in particular, to hold steady uh, to the flush is what I'm really after. And so that's going to be my spring and summer this year. So you, let, me, let me ask you, do you do uh, like skeet shooting or any kind of like prep to kind of stay, to keep the edge I don't shoot a lot, and I, I don't claim to be a good shot. And I, honestly, it's okay with me because sometimes I feel like if I shot, if I actually, if I actually hit and killed as many birds as I shoot at, it might be problematic for the bird population in Southeast Washington. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I don't. I really don't mind missing birds. I if, for us, I, I get when I get just those perfect crossing shots or whatever, or, or a pheasant or something sits really tight for the dog and I get that textbook flush and drop a bird or something, then absolutely perfect. I put enough in the freezer to make us all happy in a season. Um, so, and also one of the reasons I haven't done a lot of shooting the past couple of years in particular is because of the ammo shortage. You know, yeah. wow, for pheasants yeah. forever, we've been playing a really hard time just getting um, flats of, of target loads for our, uh, or skeet circuits and whatnot that we do for youth. So I've been really conservative on that. Wow. Yeah. I could imagine too. I didn't even think about that. And I've like, I've squirreled away, you know, target loads and, and some lead shots and stuff. Just like, I got to have them in case I want to go out to go hunt, but man, yeah, the, the ammo shortage. I'm hoping, hoping to see the end. <laughs> yeah. No joke. So, can you give uh, just a real quick, not as detailed as you want, uh, an overview kind of of the book uh, for those out there? Sure. So Wing Shooting the Palouse is really a collection of uh, different essays over the past decade or so that uh, I've experienced. And it, it really, the, the, the purpose of it is to wrap in the holistic experience of hunting upland birds. You know, so there's there, uh, and this is a hard thing for me to explain because I, if birds, if if it weren't for the upland birds, and wanting to go out and hunt those birds, 
what would be the point, right? There, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have my dogs. I wouldn't go out and I wouldn't hunt birds. So that hunting the actual birds and, and, you know, carrying a shotgun with the intent to shoot birds is the foundation of the hunt. But when you actually get out there and, and orchestrate that hunt, that just becomes a facet of it. There is so much involved in the hunt and, you know, the, the, uh, the teamwork between the hunter and the canine and the landscape, you know, I talk about cultural history in here and in a particularly interesting area to me in the Scablands of central Washington mm-hmm. and just the, the overall beauty of the grasslands. Uh, and it's so many things just all come together, uh, particularly for upland hunting for me. And I, I write about these experiences because everybody sees the hunt through a different lens. And everybody kind of has a different take home. And for me, at the end of the day, the take home is having gone and hunted public land or public access, you know, with my dogs, having had a, a, a good time because it's, there's never a bad day in the field. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes we get lucky and we, we, we pretty much always find birds. Getting lucky is I get the shot that I need and I, and I connect with a bird and, you know, I bring a bird or two home here and there. Um, but really, it's it's just a matter of all of the beautiful things about the outdoors and public land and working with the dogs and seeing the birds and the landscape. All of those things I really try to wrap in uh, because that the entire orchestration of a hunt is what inspires me to go do it. It's it's not a uh, not a body count at the end of the day or, or something like that, you know. So there's just so much more to be gained from upland hunting uh, than than something like that. No, that's awesome. Well, well said. Um, I, I definitely recommend it to anybody who it doesn't matter if you're into hunting upland birds or if you are just interested or it's all completely new to you. Like, I, I think it's a good all around, like, here's some awesome stories, get you pumped. You get kind of inside Brad's head. You see, like, how much he loves his fur babies because that is very apparent throughout the entire uh, the entire uh, book is, like, how much love you show them, which is pretty cool. Hey, what Brad, what do you think your, your favorite story or essay from the book is? Oh, man. That's a really tough one. Because so many of them were so much fun to write, but I, I'll, I'll have to give a shout out to Jorge Ramirez for um, Hip Lake Jorge, the Upland parody, and because it's so that's such an unusual piece for me, and, you know, it's literally a, a mockery of upland hunting, and and Jorge inspired it with uh, an April Fool's writing that he did a few years ago. When I read it, I just I died. I died laughing. It, you know, it was one of those things where nobody's safe, for, you know, <laughs> while it's literally just meant to be fun, you know, I, I had to write something similar. And uh, so I, I ended up doing it thinking about Jorge and he and I have a, a good, uh, um, a good relationship through social media and whatnot. And, and he's a super talented artist. So I've, I've got a couple of his uh, works here for the deer room. One of these days, well, I guess it's a bird room now. One of these days when I get this place remodeled, those are going to be up on the wall and just kind of stack. Is that the, he, he does the guy Taku of the birds, right? Yeah. So I've got a few of those. Yep. And he's, so he's a one, um, upland art and, uh, upland jitsu. Those are his two handles on Instagram. <laughs> so anyway, that one, that was, just for funsies, that was probably one of my favorites. I, I did like that one a lot. And you talk about you're meeting him and like, <laughs> and then at the <laughs> end, you, it, it cracked me up because then at the end, you're like, yeah, I just tossed my pipe out the window. <laughs> I was just like, oh man, you know, all the, I, all I the have, stereotypes. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, so much fun to be had there with that one. But I, I just have to, to say that, you know, I, 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 all of the good things I said about Jorge were truthful. They were intended mm-hmm. to be good things, you know. I think he is super suave, and he's a nice guy and, and whatnot. Um, but I, I had to poke at some of the things that he had said and what he had written, you know. So, so I, I, of course, I let him review that one before I published it. I was like, no way do I want to <laughs> offend this guy. Uh, luckily, he enjoyed it, and he let me use some of his art for that chapter, which that, that particular piece of art uh, inspired the ending to the to the story too so <laughs> all around a lot of fun shout out to Jorge he's a good guy you ready? showtime 
On May 3rd, summer starts with the Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You do mention social media several times kind of in, in the book, and... I guess how how has social media shaped you as a hunter? Because the way I look at it is is bird hunting is something that can be done, especially if you have your own dogs. Like you can be very solo in that, but there's also a huge community aspect to bird hunting. That that's what attracts a lot of people. Is like you know we can all line up, we can march through the field, you know, and and shoot birds and have a good time, come back and you know enjoy a beverage and have have some laughs, but how has social media played into your growth as a hunter? You know, social media has played into that a number of different ways. Um, and I, I think for just for starters, it's some of the, uh, the photography that you get to see and the stories that folks are telling are truly inspirational on their own. Uh, and, Going a little further than that, you know, upland hunting is a very traditional type of hunt. You know, I talk in one of the chapters uh, about the tradition of carrying classic firearms. And I'm I'm one of these guys who gets suckered right into the nostalgia type things, right? So Mm -hmm. my latest double gun edition was a, a 1911 LC Smith that is the smoothest probably one of the sweetest side-by-sides I'll ever own. And I have no idea what the backstory is on it. And I really wish I did, but you know, that gun's over a century old and, and what it could tell me if it could talk and how it feels to carry that gun. I, I just, tell you the, sorry to cut it, the, the LC Smiths. I, I, uh, so I have two that I inherited from my grandfather. Uh, one is the 12 gauge that was made in 1886 and the other one is a 16 gauge that was made in the 1890s, and I've never fired either. They're side by side. They're hammerless. They are the most beautiful articulate guns I've ever seen. And uh, when you, I, I, as I was reading in the the LC Smith, I, it caught my. And it just, it, you're right, nostalgia. I was just like, oh man, it takes me back. It's like. I remember when he bought him at an auction at an estate sale, and he was so proud of like. Look at this gun. He was also a little pissed because somebody outbid him and he had to bid higher than he wanted to to get it, but he got it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, but I remember like, and even after he passed away, is just like kind of taking it out of the, the gun case and just holding it and looking at it and just being like, man, this is such a cool gun. And exactly the thing you mentioned is like, what is the backstory to this gun? Because the one, uh, you know, 1886, that gun's 100 years older than me. So man, what did it see in those 100 years? Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, the tradition goes far deeper too. Like there was uh, the story of the wooden dove migration um, where Charlie Jordan, you know, kind of spurs this thing every year for, to basically raise awareness for uh, the, the, the wooden decoy and, and hand carving tradition type things. And, and I got on board with that and uh, learned a, a quite a bit from, you know, just having the interest sparked and look, looking into some of the, the history of, of decoys and, and being able to, to shoot doves over some decoys that, you know, somebody cut and carved and, and passed along for, uh, you know, for that particular purpose. Uh, and so there's, there's just an awful lot of, of tradition and I guess, uh, that kind of brings an overall sense of community from my perspective, you know, being able to interact with folks through social media in that regard. Um, there's, I've got another, uh, 
another story in here that was another one that was really fun. Uh, pheasant firearms and internet strangers. You mm-hmm. know? Yep, <laughs> that, yep. That hunt with Darren McCall was absolutely just freaking awesome, and I'm looking forward to getting out with him again soon. You know, if somebody had met through social media and was like, "Hey, let's go, yeah. let's go hunt some birds," and man, that guy pulled the stops out. Like the places he took me to hunt. It's like, well, Darren, if you come hunt with me, I can't promise that many birds. You know, <laughs> it looks quite like that, but <laughs> it's uh, you know, I I think it too, and you know, there's there's a lot of conversation going on right now as far as like social media's role in in the hunting community and whether or not social media wants to be there and. You know, we've got places like Go Wild that are specifically catered towards individuals who want to talk about their outdoor activities in sort of like a quote unquote safe space. Um, but man, I I think first off, I would never be doing what I'm doing without social media. And I remember like the time the table turned. And just like you had the the blog era, you had the Facebook era, you had the Instagram era, and then you had kind of this all-encompassing of like we have to use every piece of social media to connect with everybody we can because you never know what somebody's attracted to. And it it's allowed me to connect with so many people, and I mean including you two. Like I never would have met either one of you if it wasn't for some form of social media, like harvesting nature wouldn't be what it is today without it. And, but I, you know, I recognize the points people bring up and I don't always agree with it. I'm not going to use this podcast as a platform to like express my concerns because we're here to talk about your awesome work. But (laughs) I think it's, it's, it's great to, it's great to be on the same page with that. Of Like it's, I think within the hunting community using it for the point of like connecting with folks and like, he hears the awesome things kind of going on and like, Oh, do you want to go hunt? Do you want to go fish? Do you want to go forage? Do you want to go do these things? Like connecting with people of like minds, like that's 100% the intent, at least the original intent. So, right. Awesome. I, I, I just wanted to ask that question because you, you did mention it seven times there and I had, uh, I had Jorge's, uh, little little story written down here because i wanted to talk about him too because i followed him on instagram and uh even the upland art i think it's so cool and then thinking about the wooden dove migration i've seen so many people buy into it i think this year may be my year uh that i'm gonna sign up (laughs) and uh give it a go but um not to mention brad you have some really awesome photography and I get to see your photography on social media, which is good. And I wanted to ask you too, like, how do you create that balance when you're out hunting of like the photography and and the hunting? Because I've struggled <laughs> with it. <laughs> so how is a really difficult question. Poorly is what I like to say because for me, it's it's a choice. You know, do I worry about handling and, and shooting or, or the gun, mm-hmm. or do I worry about working the camera? And um, I, I have to admit that this past season, I left my my SLR at home or in the truck more often because I felt like I I wasn't necessarily doing the dogs a disservice. My dogs don't care. They're used to me not hitting birds, right? So they don't care. If we, <laughs> <laughs> they're happy to run and they're happy to find birds and they and they do their thing really well and and we all have a great time. But I um I made it more of a point to. I guess pay more attention to working with those dogs and, and, and just orchestrating the hunt for what it is. Right. Uh, and, and so I carried the, the iPhone and I took some iPhone photos, uh, which are always, they always get me about three quarters of what I would like to see in, uh, in some of the stuff that I do, mostly the detailed photos I can do. And, and I'm pretty satisfied with, with the iPhone, but the, if, if I'm really looking for photography, and and I'm being serious about it in a hunt. My shooting is going to suffer, and uh, sometimes I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give the dog the kind of attention they need. Um, but and that's really what it comes down to. Like there's one of the stories I wrote in there, and, and I can't remember which one particularly, but I it, I think it's better lucky than good. I talk about my oldest dog Finn finding the needle in the haystack partridge covey that I had just tripped on years ago while I was deer hunting and was like, we're going to go find those, those birds. And sure enough, that covey was almost identically where I had seen them years ago. 
and that dog found them. And I, I did the very risky move of, I'm going to try to get a photo of this dog on point here before I go flush. And somehow or another, I got the photo and I got a bird. Yeah. <laughs> so yes. That was one of those <laughs> rare moments, but it was like, I knew how touchy that was, you know, with partridge and the covey birds always like to run. I mean, for, I guess any, basically in my experience, all of them run. Every one mm-hmm. of them runs, you know, roosters are the worst, but the partridge and, and the, all the covey birds just start to scuttle along. And I knew that I had taken long enough by the time I got to that dog, just, just so I could get the one photo of her on point that the, the birds were moving because her demeanor was starting to change. Luckily, you know, all of it just somehow miraculously came together and the birds were still within gun range when they came up. But that that's, you know, that's the trade-off. Yeah, I, I think I'm... It, it's hard too, and I've looked at it now that I got a little more into filming and photography and stuff. And like, how do you? It's such a like on-off switch. There's no like, I can't do the camera in one hand and the you know the, my rifle in the other, my binos in the other. I'm like, I'm one other place. Like last year we were out spring bear hunting, and I was like taking a picture of Ben. Like this is the best picturesque. We're on the side of this clear cut. We're looking down on this bottom. The sun's setting. He's like got his hoodie on. He's like, nobody ever really takes pictures of me. I was like, dude, don't worry. I got you. I broke out my, my DLSR or DSLR. And I was like, boom. And then Ben's like, bear, bear, bear. And I was like, ah, <laughs> then it just all erupted. Yeah, exactly <laughs> so, right. um, and then yeah. the camera got put away, and I think we went down for the bear, and it just got left behind. <laughs> and we filmed Man. everything else on the phone. Yep, I understood. Like, I got a piece of public land that gets hunted really hard, and it's a prime piece down on the Snake River. And I've never actually killed a pheasant in there, but I don't know how many I've shot at. And I was there with some buddies last fall. I can't remember if it was 21 or 20, but a handful of us went and hunted it. And uh, there were like 30-some birds that got up way, way ahead of us. They, just, they were just, you know, running around us, running long, blowing up wild, way, way out of range. And my buddies took their dogs and peeled out. And I went to the other side of this property. And I hadn't gone 100 yards from the parking lot. And the dog started working a bird. And I was like, ah, what do you know? That, that thing's probably moved on. <laughs> and so I've got the camera. And it's, it's one of those moments where the sun is just streaming through her tail feathers. She's on point. And it's, I've got this wheat grass and, and this, um, you know, the basalt bluffs in the background and as i'm snapping a photo my eye catches a rooster come into the frame and i'm like you gotta be you know so i get i get the photo i'm like well there's a there's a candid for you i'd literally drop the camera i've got the gun and i don't know what hand by the time i got the gun up and got it shouldered swung through totally missed the bird twice and the dog is just like what in the hell are you doing she, she circles back and is like why why just why don't we just go home yeah it's like take me to the truck i'm done (laughs) (laughs) oh man yeah it's a it's such an interesting thing so um we've kind of talked about it a little bit but for those who are not familiar with with kind of bird hunting or field hunting what's the kind of process like if you walked me through like all right we get there we park like we talk about what we're gonna do we unload the dogs you know we kind of prep like what's what's that kind of look like yeah, that's a good question. And uh, so th- this is something that's different in a different geography. And so by that, I mean where I hunt a lot south of the Snake River in this little southeast corner of Washington, we have a lot of very small parcels. You know, so when I, and, and, and I'll put this in the context for you, when I talk about where I hunt in places like Montana, Literally, the small, if I'm looking at, at what I would call a small piece of geography in Montana, you've got 100,000 acres of BLM. That doesn't include the state parcels or the block management parcels or whatever else in this particular area. Where I'm at, you know, <laughs> my, my typical hunts are a couple hundred acres. And uh, it's, it's one of those places you got to be real careful about with the number of hunters that also hunt there, you know, not just myself. And uh, where you can actually access the properties uh, relative to what's the wind like for the day or, you know, other environmental conditions. Uh, So with that kind of a caveat and and context there, if I'm hunting on the Palouse, I've I've got a spot or two, let's, let's say any given parcel 
where I can access that thing. And uh, it's 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 just the the typical setup is, you know, pull the truck over, get it parked. I don't keep my dogs collared up and ready to go. I keep them just in their regular leash collar. Uh, I, so I get the truck stopped. I break out a, a Garmin unit, power it up, and I get myself geared up. I get my gun out. I get my vest on. I get everything set up. The last thing I do is is put the uh, GPS collar on that dog, and then I'll, I'll pull out whether it's one or two. I carry two collars. I usually I don't run more than two dogs at a time, um, partially because it gives me a, a opportunity to hunt longer throughout the day, and I don't push my dogs too hard because I've got freaking four of them right now, right? So grab a dog or two and uh, take them over to where we're going to begin. I, I like to try to work the, any any cover into the wind because it gives the dog the advantage. You can't always do that. No big deal. You know, you, you get out, you, the dog's going to freak out for a couple of seconds. I end up calling him back in and I set him down. And uh, if I've got anybody else hunting with me, uh, particularly if, if it's someone who's not used to hunting with dogs, which I actually, for the first time ever, I, I worked, uh, I hunted with a guy this past fall who'd never hunted behind a bird dog. And he had always hunted grouse on foot, you know, by himself in New England. And I was like, you're in for a treat today, man. We're going to hunt partridge <laughs> and we're going to find birds and you're going to see bird dog work, right? So I, I, ta- I tell them what to expect with the dog, like what it means when they're doing things. Um, but anyway, got the dog there. And then I, if, if they're leashed or whatever, I just have them by the collar, unclip them. And I'm just like, go find them. And the dog knows what to do, you know. The dog leaves and uh, I just start walking. I'll throw a couple of shells in the gun. And the, the and honestly, I don't pay a lot of attention to the dog when they're running. They uh, they generally check in with me, so I just kind of keep an eye on the general direction they're moving and just go for a stroll. And it, you know, having the GPS unit takes so much. I don't want to say it takes attention away from the dog or off of the dog, mm-hmm. but it takes a lot of questioning off. You know, it takes a lot of the pressure off a lot of where, where might that dog be? Um, the first few years that I hunted, probably the, well, the first six years, I think I didn't run any collars on my, any, uh, you know, any electronics on my dogs, didn't train them with e-collars, didn't run GPS. When I got my youngest, uh, for our North Dakota trip, I ended up getting GPS units because that dog is a whole different beast and <laughs> I wasn't going to drop her without him. I never would have gotten her back. Um, so, you know, the days of, well, I haven't heard or seen that dog in a while. It must be on point somewhere. Where the hell is it? Those, those days are gone. <laughs> so I just walk along and, and uh, you know, I like it when I can pay attention to the dog. And, and they usually work within one to 200 yards now. The, uh, the older dogs are starting to slow down. And so, and they hunt closer and they check in a lot. So I, I love to keep an eye on the dog because I'm really there to watch the dog work and to be a part of the hunt with the dog. Uh, and I, I just follow them. I let them tell me where to go. Um, if we end up working a, a smaller parcel, you know, sometimes I'll kind of, kind of guide them one way or another, uh, to make sure we cover it, uh, in, in a benefit or uh, in an advantageous fashion, um, Otherwise, you know, if they're out of sight, I don't even sweat it because I know they're going to check in. Or if the, uh, the handheld unit beeps, I know the dog's on point and they're going to stand right there until I get there. Uh, even with the young dog, she'll, she'll hold point now. It's just a matter That's of... That's so cool. Yeah. It's just a matter of, is she 50 yards or 500 yards, you know? <laughs> So, yeah, but that's, and that's really what it is. I take a walk with a dog. I follow the dog and, uh, and just have a ball with them. And we just go out there and have fun and, and take in the scenery and see some good dog work and put up some birds here and there. And, you know, every, every new site, I mean, I got enough sites that I, that I know well enough that I know what to expect for each one. I know about where we're going to find birds or, or if there are different, you know, changes in cover types, what it's going to mean for, for birds and mm-hmm. how likely they are to be there. Um, but if, if it's somewhere we've never been, no problem. Put the dog so, out and just follow them. So that, does having um, an older dog that is better trained or more experienced help with the younger dog learn more quickly? In my experience, Yes. The, my, so my oldest, I hunted her with my second 
dog and then my my youngest dog to help me with the training because you know I've, I've I'm be the first person to say I'm not a great dog trainer and I've never really had the good tools for it until now um, the for my middle pup uh, Yuba my older dog Finn was an incredible mentor but some of that depends on the dog so Yuba was just born with a prey drive and a tenacity that you that everybody loves to see in a hunting dog it's something you just can't teach and she is my number one pheasant dog she doesn't put as many birds in the bag because she is so just amped to hunt that she you know she's not as um i guess she's just not as as steady as my older dog she'll sometimes she'll run past birds or she'll get excited and uh, you know one thing or another but that dog knows how to find pheasant and when it comes to a running bird she knows how to stop them and so you know that's something you can't teach a dog they have to learn it on their own um she as far as what pheasant were and when what really lit the spark with her had it not been for my older dog, you know, when, when Yuba was a puppy hunting with her and us getting some birds and whatnot, those first, those first few hunts and Yuba's first years hunting with the older mentor dog were really crucial. So I think, I think it's awesome. Um, I, I have to say that with Zeta, my youngest, who's still the wild card, the first couple of birds I shot over that dog where she was actually on point holding point, she was, almost shoulder to shoulder with my older dog Finn. And so it, it definitely having Finn in the field has, has helped Zeta hold point longer, you know? So mm-hmm. it, yeah, I, I would say it definitely helps. Zeta still just Zeta. There's no other way to talk about that dog other than she should probably be a good field <laughs> trailer and not trying to hunt with me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I was going to ask, so this is a two-part question, uh, favorite bird to hunt and favorite bird to eat, because yeah. we have to talk about food. Okay, yeah, to. no, that's that's actually a really good, really good question. You know, up until a few years ago, I would have said pheasant just because that was what I pursued the most. Mm-hmm. But man, I have to say, after the past couple of seasons of having some spectacular Hungarian partridge numbers on the Palouse. Partridge are without a doubt my favorite birds to hunt. And I, I think it's just that total combination of the short grass habitats that they that they uh, thrive in and what it feels like and what it looks like and what it sounds like when a covey rises and how they challenge the dog to work them because, you know, huns move quite a bit. And uh, they're, they're similar to Chucker in that you can kind of see uh, some of their sign as you're getting closer to a covey. Uh, you can start, you know, seeing the fresh sign and, and you start seeing your dog is getting birdie and whatnot. And then they run a little bit. But a dog, a dog that's hunting them a few times can learn how to, can learn how to get around them and stop them. And, and when they do that and the dog is just, you know, the dog gets that look in its eye and you're like, Oh yeah, there's a covey here. And, and especially when you're seeing, you know, 20 plus birds get up and it's a, you know, a good covey and you, you want to shoot at them, man, that is just spectacular. As so, far as go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say that sounds awesome. You painted that picture very well. Um, now let's, let's turn to the table. So, I learned a good lesson this past fall, and I'm going to have to say it's Chucker. Okay. I never, and and so I, I'll say that I never in my life dreamed that Chucker would be my favorite upland bird, but that's because I just never killed any. You know, <laughs> I've been hunting them for years. <laughs> finally, I finally got into into some Chucker this past fall, and uh, I was absolutely shocked at how tasty those birds were you know and and so it, i think one of my favorite pheasant recipes was um post was published in the outdoor news this past fall and i thought it just couldn't get better than that until i i took a handful of chucker and did them in the sous vide and then did a glaze Ooh. that was this uh, it was this strange glaze that i had gotten an idea for and i'm not going to talk too much about it because i'm going to pitch it to you guys later for your cookbook um, yes but it was something that was just like it's really unique it's uh it's if i could 
if I could liken the glaze to anything, I would call it like a leathery bourbon kind of a whiskey drink. Mm. Something that I just, like it. it. I'm intrigued for sure. It's, it's, it's intriguing. Now it doesn't sound very appetizing, but man, <laughs> that thing when you try it on some on some chucker that have been sous vide and then seared, holy smokes! So yeah, that was definitely as good as it gets. That's good. Yeah, I um. Oh man, I'm trying to think. Probably one of my favorites. And like I said, I don't have much experience, so I haven't. I don't have the uh, the portfolio, but quail are good. I like quail and obviously dove, as long as we're not talking about dove poppers, but <laughs> I'll save that for another day. <laughs> um, oh, man. I, I dug up, actually, so before we hopped on here, I dug up a couple of your recipes, which I can mention real quick. So your uh, pheasant Thai curry. Mm-hmm. That one's spectacular. Oh, yeah. I love a good curry, too, and it's just like, man, it does look phenomenal. I think uh, with bell pepper. You okay, Corey? <laughs> okay. <laughs> this guy, don't die. You're not allowed to die while we're recording. <laughs> um, so on this recipe, very uh, bell peppers, peanut butter. You've got uh, milk in there, Thai curry sauce, over noodles too, which is really, really good. Man, just like Thai noodles too. So like those, those fat rice noodles, which I really like. It does look great. Good use. Uh, and you're using like the pheasant breast for that, probably. Okay. And then I know you like to sous vide, and this one's a favorite too. Sous vide pepper sage quail. That's a good one too. Man, quail are just so tasty. And that one, the CV. So I like it because a lot of folks are are have really caught on, and it, you know, you and I being one of those folks as well. But like, the souving of game birds, like, does so much to not dry them out, which I think that's one of the big big points when you're looking at cooking game birds because they dry out so so easy that I'll recommend to folks out there that if you're looking for a good way to like to do definitely not a traditional cook, but to do a good, uh, a cook method you should take as a habit, the sous vide, sous vide to sear. And then, you know, like Brad just mentioned, adding the sauce or doing something else. Like it's a phenomenal way to do the birds. You, I think you can't go wrong with that. Yeah. And that's really a a game changer for folks who want to try it, Mm -hmm. It, you know, because you can't, you, you really can't screw something up in the sous vide. You know, no. You, there's no possible way to overcook it. So, it just I, I've uh, I've screwed something up in the sous vide. It's possible. No way. <laughs> oh, no. Everyone except everyone except for Corey, you're okay. <laughs> <laughs> I I did a uh, venison. Oh, it was like a top round or something like that, boneless top round. And uh, I sous vide had it in the, for like 24 hours, and it it uh, it turned to mush. Like the texture was just hmm. gross. Okay, so. that's a good point you bring up. You, I mean, you can the the longer you do it, the softer it gets. So yeah, yeah if you do something that long, it would be a pate basically. Yeah. Make a smoothie out of it and just go on. I, Ugh, I, was, terrible. I was so heartbroken when I pushed that into the garbage can, but I was like, there's no possible way I can eat that. You, you know what? You know what? I got an idea. I have an idea. This may be revolutionary. For overcooked sous vide meat, dehydrator for jerky. Ne- never crossed my mind. Yeah, but I mean, think about it. You do the little uh, the jerky gun, right? And it's just like ground meat that's essentially like pulverized. So if you overcook your meat, I'll say it here first on the <laughs> the Wild Fishing Game podcast. If you overcook your meat in a sous vide, put it in the dehydrator and send me an email and tell me how it comes out. Like Harvest, slice it first. Harvesting nature <laughs> test kitchen. Tets. There it is. There it is. There you go. <laughs> 
I think the longest I've left birds in might have been six hours, and those were those would have been chucker. Usually, I, I don't do I don't well I'll do venison up to six hours pretty regular, but usually three mm-hmm. to four is about where I stop with most things. I had like a it was a three or four pound uh, bison roast that I did for like what did I do it for thirty six hours. But that thing, oh my gosh, it turned out phenomenal. But that was yeah, a huge, that's that like a, a huge chunk hunk. of meat. Yeah, yeah. Obviously something smaller. And I think, too, you can go on. There, there are some good resources. Maybe that's what we should do. We need to put together a, a game bird sous vide guide um, with all the different cooking times and, and weights. But uh, there are some good resources, like use off chicken poundage and other things like that out there. So... And something good maybe for the listener to know if you're not familiar with sous vide, it's it's so it's a warm water bath, and when you put your meat in there, you put it in a sealed bag like a, mm-hmm. um, a urethane or not a urethane bag. What's what am I thinking? A silicon bag or um, you can a do Ziploc back seal, yeah, back Ziploc, seal. back seal, yeah. anything. Yeah, yeah. You what you cook? You actually cook it in its own juice. You know there. So it's. You will you will ruin your food if you put it in there. Just drop it in the water. Just just saying, you know. you're just boiling just, it. Yeah, basically, yeah, yeah. And so you know that's and that's not something obvious to folks if they don't really have a grasp of what sous vide means. So just wanted to put that out there. We have a we actually have an episode, a whole entire episode on sous vide wild game, right, Corey? It's way back in the in the dictionary. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, to... we'll we'll put it in the show notes. You can listen to it. <laughs> um, let's see. What was I going to say? I think that's those are kind of like the the really good recipes. Um, I think that we've hit on. There's a multitude of other recipes on the website for Upland Game, but those are Brad's, which I wanted to talk about because he's here. Um, but other than that, I think really. I really, really recommend this book. Got me pumped. I'm ready now. I'm on the verge of getting a dog. I'm not going to do it. Uh, <laughs> Come on. But, just got a dog. <laughs> sore subject, Corey. I'll tell you later. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, but not a bird dog, but uh, definitely makes me think about it. And also, too, uh, definitely very, very interested to get more into it. So I would recommend anybody pick up the book. Brad, where can they get the book? Yeah, right now it's available on Amazon. So nice. just search up Wing Shooting the Palouse. It'll come up. Um, it's also available at Kiyoki Books. Uh, that's K-E-E-O-K-E. They are based out of Sandpoint, Idaho. Uh, they're a publisher and marketer that I worked with to get this book published and get it out there for folks. Sweet. Um, also, too, we'll, we'll put a link down in the show notes uh, so you can click on that as well, and, and then we'll uh, we'll throw some links up on the website, obviously, because uh, we want to support our fellow our fellow Harvest in Nature crew in in their endeavors. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that, and, and I, I appreciate being able to write with you guys and do podcasts and whatnot. This is a, this is an excellent group, and and I think. Uh, I think the content provided from harvesting nature to the consumer is actually really great stuff, you know, covers the gamut of particularly the, um, the, the field, the table stuff. Thank you. Thanks, Brad. So, uh, I guess we're kind of winding down on time. Corey's giving me weird looks, which means I need to close <laughs> this out. <laughs> um, so, uh, I will say Brad, uh, if you have a last thought, alibi question, anything you want to share with, with us or, or the listeners, actually it would be both us and the listeners, uh, feel free to shoot away. Yeah, I would say, you know, the book is meant to be entertaining. Uh, it's meant to poke fun at myself and, and shed light on uh, as many mistakes as, as uh, you know, all of the great times and, and phenomenal experiences that I've had in the field. Uh, I, anyone who wants to get into upland bird hunting, uh, it doesn't have to be intimidating or complicated or, you know, scary. Um, I think if that that's one of the perspectives that I write from, you know, it's like you can go out there as I did with pretty much no experience and very little knowledge and still really enjoy and learn. And, and I ended up with phenomenal dogs just because we taught each other and went to the field and, and enjoyed our, our time together, you know? And so that's really what hunting and, and the outdoors is all about. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Corey, last thought. Just thanks, Brad, for coming on, talking to us about your book. And uh, everybody out there needs to get one. <laughs> yes, Corey. I agree with Corey 100%. <laughs> no, uh, thanks, Brad. I'm, I'm glad. Uh, thank you for, for the book, and, and thanks for for making the time to come on and chat about it. Uh, I think that you will find you're definitely – uh, your stories are going to inspire more people than you realize to 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 pick up a, a side by side or over under and and get out in the field, which is good. So uh, I, I thanks I, I thank you for that because it's awesome. And um, yeah, definitely thanks for all that you do for for us at Harvest of Nature, and, and thanks for jotting down and poking fun at yourself so that at <laughs> our entertainment expense. Absolutely. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, uh, all around great book. Like I said, I agree with Corey. Everybody else should should go out and buy it. So do do that now. Pause this podcast and go. But uh, for all those listening out there, um, make sure you head over to Brad's uh, Instagram page. Brad, can you remind us what it is one more time? Yep, it's Tail Feathers Upland. So that's Tail Feathers underscore Upland. And uh, if you're wondering, that one had to do with uh, not only Upland bird tails, but uh, Llewellyn setter tails because they have that mm. fancy flashy tail feathering that I just love. So. <laughs> yeah. Good name. Thanks for sharing that context. Um, and then once you do that, head over to the harvest of nature, uh, on all the various social media platforms and then whatever podcast platform you listen to, please punch that five star button. Tell us what we're doing wrong or, you know, tell us what we're doing right. Thanks everybody. Have a good night. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. When you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.